The Guardian. During lockdown, many of us will have spent our days with only our houseplants for company. Some of us might have even ended up talking to them. Unfortunately, they can't talk back to us. But possibly, they're corresponding with each other. Experiments have shown that plants are able to give off plumes of organic compounds when harmed or disturbed. These airborne chemicals can act as a warning to plants nearby who can ready their own defences in response. And below the soil too, chemical signals are travelling back and forth between plants through fungal networks that connect their roots. In forests, where lots of different vegetation coexists, scientists are now beginning to build up a picture of just how complex these connections might be. Plants can signal to each other how related they are, or they can at least tell what the relationship of their neighbour is. So they know whether or not they're a different species, they know that they're a, if they're the same species, they even know if they're kin. I'm Linda Geddes, and welcome to Science Weekly. One ecologist who has spent years uncovering the secret underground lives of trees is Suzanne Simard, Professor of Forest Ecology at the University of British Columbia, who's best known for her research on the relationships between tree roots and fungi, known as mycorrhizal networks, which you may remember from our recent Age of Extinction episodes. Suzanne has recently been investigating the role that the biggest, oldest trees, which she calls mother trees, play in the health of the forest. In her new book, Finding the Mother Tree, Suzanne describes her journey from a young girl growing up in the forests of British Columbia to discovering these intricate networks of communication beneath our feet. I grew up in the interior rainforests of British Columbia, which are forests that have huge trees, um, cedars and hemlocks. They're the towering uh, monumental forests that people think about around the world as you know these brilliant, diverse, productive forests. And then I eventually... Uh, followed in my family's footsteps of becoming a forester. And I loved the bush and I learned about forestry. And I started out in the forest industry, but was soon, you know, realizing that the way that forest management was proceeding was uh, producing forests that were so different than what I had grown up to know, the natural forest, the primary forest. So these secondary forests were much simpler and they they weren't very well. And so that got me on the track of trying to figure out why. One focus of your work has been on these mycorrhizal networks. What role do they play in tree communication? Mycorrhizas are a symbiotic, mutualistic relationship between plants and fungi. And almost all of the plants, including all of the trees all over the world, form these relationships with fungi. There are a few plant families that don't, but by and large, what we see in our natural ecosystems depend on these relationships. And the way they work is that the plants or the trees photosynthesize, meaning that they take CO2 out of the atmosphere, turn it into sugars, and then they provide some of those sugars to the fungi, which then grow their hyphae through the soil, gathering up nutrients and water, so nitrogen and phosphorus, things like that, and they bring them back to the plant. And they make this mutualistic exchange. It's almost like a market exchange. You know, the more uh, photosynthate that the plant provides the fungus, the more nutrients the fungus provides back to the plant. But these fungi also um, can link plants together. 
And uh, so this discovery was actually made in the UK by a scientist named David Reed at the University of Sheffield. And some other scientists picked it up through the 1980s and into the 90s to try to look at these connections in in the local ecosystems uh, in Britain. And so I learned about it and I started looking at these connections in the wild forests of British Columbia. Um, Nobody had looked at that in the forest before. And I In my PhD, I actually found that our native plants, uh, cedar, hemlock, and I was in in particular looking at birch and Douglas fir, were linked together in these networks. And then I wanted to know what the networks did. And so there's a bunch of things. One of them is that they simply just colonize the plants to provide a bigger network for them. But they also can serve as kind of like these pipelines where plants will transmit resources back and forth. And at the time I was doing my PhD, I was looking at carbon, but other labs around the world and later with my lab too, we were looking at other elements that move back and forth uh, between these plants. And that grew and grew and grew till we now we have a much fuller sense of what that communication looks like. So like what? What else besides carbon? Others have looked at phosphorus, which moves very, very slowly. We looked at water. Water moves back and forth between plants and other information signals. One of those information signals are defense warnings. When a plant, for example, becomes injured by an insect or a pathogen or even by wind, or if somebody comes along and clips its needles, it elicits a defense response in that plant. And it turns out that some of that that biochemical cascade of events that happens as a result of that injury, some of those elements, some of those signals actually move through the mycorrhizal network to neighboring plants. And those neighboring plants will pick up those signals. And then what people have found, including in my lab, is that they'll upregulate their own DNA or their RNA, and they'll start producing uh, constitutive defense enzymes that will increase their own defense against that insect or disease that's in the forest. How challenging is it to track these networks? I mean, there must be a huge web of tendrils under the soil. It's really challenging. In fact, I think that that challenge is actually, you know, one of the things that has held the field back because the tools to actually see these networks are really difficult to use. And of course, it's in the soil and you can't visually see a lot of these networks. So we have to use things like uh, DNA or molecular tools to actually identify individual fungi on different roots of different trees and then and the individual fungi and then put together uh, who is connected to who. And, and keeping in mind that in the forests in my part of the world, these interior rainforests, there can be hundreds of fungi in a single hectare. And so to actually put together the whole map, I don't think anybody has ever done that, but you can imagine how difficult that would be when you have to have all of these molecular tools at the same time as the ability to actually sample the trees and the fungi in the soil in order to put together these maps. There's no one way to get at this. You know, trees are long-lived, they're huge organisms. It's really hard to study those. I use a combination of looking in the forest, that's always the first place I go, but in a reductionist world, it's hard to label a huge tree that maybe is 50 meters tall and then watch things move through the forest. That's really hard to do. It takes years and years. And so what I do as well is I create experiments in greenhouses and among smaller seedlings, and I I will apply labels to them and see where the information goes. I use a combination of molecular tools. I use 
isotopes. It's called stable isotope probing to do that. I even just do really simple experiments where I'll manipulate the network and try to plant seeds and seedlings around these old trees and see what happens. So there's so many ways that I've tackled the problem and trying to piece the story together because these trees are so huge. They grow for such long ages. It's not like, you know, studying bacteria in a lab. It's a completely different thing. It has its own set of challenges. So you're able to trace how nutrients are moving between trees by getting one of them to take up a particular isotope or injecting that isotope and then later taking samples from other trees to see how the isotope has travelled through the network and been absorbed. But how do we know that plants are sharing resources rather than these things simply being hijacked by the fungi and taken elsewhere? One of the things that I've done, and, and I have to have to say that the work that I did, and I've got to come back to this as I built on the work of several prominent researchers in the UK in the 1980s. And there was a review done by a man named Newman, who is British. And in his review, he said, you know, there's a bunch of things that need to be done building on the work of David Reed. And one of those things was, is there a back and forth transmission of carbon between plants? And so I took it upon myself to figure that out, whether birch was sending carbon to fir and fir was sending it back. And I found that with my graduate students, that yes, indeed, that there was this sharing back and forth between these species. And so not only did they share back and forth in the summertime, but the net amount that was shared changed over the growing season. In the spring, when birch was just leafing out and fir was already growing, fir would send carbon to birch. And then in the summer, when the birch was fully leafed out and shading the fir, it sent a net amount to the Douglas fir. So there was this back and forth going on. And at the same time, you know, there are other interactions going on between the trees. So at the same time, these trees are also competing with each other for light. It's a complex interaction uh, between the trees. Do we have any idea of how big these networks are? And also, are all types of trees plugged into them? We mapped the network in uh, six forests that were about a hectare each. Well, not quite a hectare. They were 30 metres by 30 metres, and there were six of them. So mapping that network took about five years for a graduate student of mine, Kevin Byler, to make that map. But, you know, there's other ways to get at it that aren't quite as accurate. And so we can make inferences based on just looking at the composition of the fungi in the forest. And if there are fungal species and individuals share between two different species of plants, for example, or even two different individual plants, then we make inferences about that they're networked together. So all of the species in the forest uh, harbor or they make these relationships. All these tree species make relationships with these fungi. And so they have the potential to be linked into a network, either a generalist network with a whole bunch of other tree species, or even in their own within species networks, where the individual trees within a species within a, a, a forest, for example, I looked at Douglas fir forests, and it was mostly just Douglas fir. And we found there were networks of a fungus called rhizopogon that linked all of those Douglas fir trees together. Ah, so the tree, the fir trees have their own kind of secret club. They do. Yes, they do. In fact, a lot of the tree species have a suite of either generalist fungi where they can link to other tree species or individual specialist fungi where they only link to their own individual species. Plants can signal to each other 
how related they are, or they can at least tell what the relationship of their neighbor is. So they know whether or not they're a different species. They know that they're a, if they're the same species, they even know if they're kin. So in other words, related genetically to that parent plant. And so we call that kin recognition. And kin recognition uh, involves a carbon-based signal molecule, but we don't know what it is. What happens is that the plants, when they recognize that there's a kin around them, they'll change their competitive behaviors. So they'll reduce their root production, for example, to make way for their kin. And some scientists find this idea of trees communicating a little bit problematic. Why is that? And does it have more to do with definitions and human notions of what communication is? Or is there a more fundamental disagreement going on here? There could be a more fundamental disagreement. I mean, Communication is, is an English word that we use for, for ourselves, right, as human beings. And both people have also used the word communication for between animals. But when it comes to plants, it's sort of like, well, it's a bit taboo to use a word ascribed to humans or animals to describe what's going on with plants. However, researchers have always known that plants interact with each other. Mostly that we've focused on competition, but now we know that there's this, you know, collaborative and that it's a direct communication through the air and the, the soil. And here I am using that word communication. You know, people are comfortable with calling those interactions because it's very clinical and it implies that the plants have no agency in it. When it comes to communication, we realize it's a much more complex process because that's where our communication is complex. Um, but in fact, the plants do have these very complex ways of communicating with each other. And I use that word because it's the best English word that I know to describe what's going on. Yeah, it's people criticize it. But I have to say that, you know, that the English language doesn't have words for what we're describing, you know, so we adopt words that exist. But I, I would say that in the Aboriginal nations where I live in the West Coast of North America, they have those words because they've known about these networks and plant communication for thousands and thousands of years based on their own scientific methodologies. And they've talked about it, they've written about it, it's in their ancient languages, words that describe these phenomenon that they don't have to argue because they've already had, you know, these words to describe specifically those, those phenomena between plants. One of your projects, Suzanne, is about what you call mother trees. What are they? Mother trees are just the biggest, oldest trees in the forest. The way we discovered this was um, that student that I talked about who had made the map in the forest. What emerged out of those network maps was that the biggest, oldest trees were the most highly connected trees in the forest. In fact, in the one, one of the forests that he looked at, about 90% of the trees were connected to one single big old tree. And we found that that pattern persisted, that no matter what forest we looked at, the biggest, oldest trees were the most highly connected to all the other trees. And in systems theory and graph theory, when, when those systems are described, when networks are described, they a complex system or a complex network has these, they're called hubs, these most highly connected links. So we did a bunch of experiments with bigger trees, bigger plants and, and bigger seedlings, and found that when we plant little seedlings around them or seeds, and when we compare them where they're connected to these old trees through their mycorrhizal networks versus where they're not connected, that their survival is actually enhanced. And when we look at 
transmission of resources between these old trees and these young seedlings, we find that that survival and even growth is associated with that transmission. I don't know if it's cause and effect, but they certainly happen at the same time. And so that brought us eventually, when we realized this nurturing capacity of these big old trees, that's what brought us to calling them mother trees. And so I started this big experiment uh, in British Columbia called the Mother Tree Project. So what do you think these mother trees are doing for, for the little seedlings in their care? For one thing, and perhaps this is the most important thing, is that they provide the network, right? So this network of fungi that are linking the mature trees together, when a seed from that tree falls to the forest floor, it germinates in its roots within a few months, become colonized by that network. It's tapping basically into the network. And then the little seedling, as it's struggling to grow in the understory, perhaps of a, of a shady forest, where it can't get a lot of light, it's actually getting resources from that network, which is associated with the big old trees. Once they're colonized by these mycorrhizal fungi, this network, it affords them all kinds of benefits. For example, one of them is that it protects the roots of those seedlings against pathogens. They become coated in the fungi. Pathogens can't actually get in and infect the seedlings. And so that enhances their potential survivability. The other thing that we've looked at, of course, is transmission of carbon and nutrients and water from the old trees to the young seedlings. And we found that that is also correlated with the germination of those seedlings. Once we realized that mother trees were actually playing a role in the survival of the young seedlings, the next obvious question was to ask, does that favor their own genetic kin? The way that that recognition is we looked at different traits of those seedlings and we found that the kin seedlings would have bigger mycorrhizas. They'd have more mycorrhizal connections to the old trees and this helped them. We also knew that the kin tree or the donor or the mother tree could also adjust her competitive ability to make elbow room for the seedlings. Basically what's happening is that the old mother trees recognize which are their seedlings. They can send them a little bit of carbon, which we found. They enhance their mycorrhizal networks. They make room with the root system by adjusting their competitive abilities and just basically are enhancing the ability of those kin seedlings to survive and grow. Okay, so I've got this lovely image of these nurturing mummy trees. Um, but does, that, does everyone buy into this idea or could there be any other explanations for, for these findings? I'm sure that not everybody believes that they, I mean, there's always been naysayers and that's true in science, right? Science is an iterative process and we build on studies, study after study and try to enhance our understanding of the truth. So yes, there are naysayers, but that's okay. Um, and what are some alternative explanations? Well, rather than these old trees or mother trees providing resources to seedlings, which is very, you know, that seems to be the most controversial part and whether or not they enhance the growth and survival of those seedlings could be explained by that the mother trees are just, the networks are just colonizing those seedlings and that seedlings are just benefiting from being part of that network. I suppose this brings us to the subject of awareness. Are trees aware? And what does, what would that even mean? Are they aware? So these, all these English language words that are so loaded with human, you know, <laughs> um, and it always gets me in trouble when I start using these words or I get, you know, accused of being anthropomorphizing. Are they aware? Well, they certainly are responding in real time all the time 
to their environment. Does that mean they're aware? They certainly are attuned to what's going on around them and their whole biochemistry changes in seconds in response to, you know, whether there's something chewing on its needles, whether there's a squirrel crawling up its trunk to get some cones, whether or not we're stripping bark off the trees, whether or not we're going to about to cut down the tree, whether you're infected by a pathogen, these trees know what's going on, right? And they respond and we can measure those responses. Is that awareness? Let me ask you, (laughs) what is a better word to use for that? Finally, when you started to find out about all these networks, did it make you see trees any differently? Of course. Um, I, I mean, I always loved trees and I and I always knew because I grew up in their roots, basically, um, these very complex forests, these very sophisticated places. I always knew that they had, you know, this magical element or in my mind, in my intuition, in my heart. But then as I started to apply the scientific method to try to uncover what was going on, I was thrilled, you know, to see what I could see. I was surprised. And I remember sitting in the lab during my PhD and, and suddenly these patterns emerged out of my data. And I I remember running over to my doctoral supervisor, Dave Perry, and go, Dave, Dave, look what I found. And it was so exciting. You know, we were all excited to find out this, you know, these, what was going on. It was just so fascinating. It is indeed fascinating. Um, Thank you so much for coming on Science Weekly. It's been a complete pleasure speaking to you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure speaking with you too. That was Professor Susan Simard and her book, Finding the Mother Tree, will be available in bookshops and online from the 4th of May. We've put a link to it on our podcast webpage at theguardian.com. Now, usually at this point, I might be saying that we'll see you on Tuesday. But next week, we'll be doing things slightly differently. You'll still be getting two episodes, but they'll be out on Wednesday and Thursday instead. So don't expect an episode to appear on the feed until then. We do have a reason for the change. Next Wednesday is a very special day for The Guardian, but much more on that to come. We'll see you then. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.